This is the Frey Podcast, brought to you by thefrey.com, a place for women who want more from life. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Today's podcast episode is a Q&A with Jacqueline Curtis. Jackie is a family law specialist and a founding director of Parker Coles Curtis. Jackie has worked exclusively in family law for more than a decade, and I'm sure that she has seen it all. Jackie has been a contributor towards our guide, Surviving Separation, and has truly been a voice of reason in the space for so many people. Now, today's episode, as I said up top, it's a Q&A. We are moving through and answering as many questions as we possibly could that were submitted uh, via Instagram. Now, I do mention this when Jackie and I begin our conversation, but just to really stress the point, a podcast can never, should never, will never be able to take the place of actual individualized our legal advice and guidance. So whilst we are answering questions, it is general, very, very general information because we we just can't talk to everyone's individual circumstance and there are so many nuances and so many layers that it just can't possibly be uh, answered via a podcast when you've got such a limited amount of characters to submit your question. So anything that we discuss today any answers that Jackie gives, those are not to be taken um, as legal advice for you personally. This is general information and you should absolutely always seek out your own guidance that's unique to your situation. And Jackie does have an offer that she t- that she talks about uh, towards the end of our conversation whereby you actually can speak with a lawyer for half an hour and get those questions answered that you have. So we do speak to a variety of topics in today's episode. We touch on child support. We talk about how old your child can be before they begin going between two homes. We talk about when your child is actually old enough to have a say. Um, We talk about a lot. (laughs) We answer a lot of questions in this episode, but we could have kept going for sure. I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, you'll hear me say at the end as well that we didn't even get to the binding financial agreements and um, we didn't get to do a deep dive on consent orders and court and things like that. But that is all included in Surviving Separation if you're interested and if you are hungry for more information. Um, and the more information that you have on these topics, the better, because then you are informed you're empowered, you understand what is going on. And when you're going through a separation, 
That ambiguity can just cause so much anxiety, the ambiguity and the uncertainty. So actually having certainty and knowing to as much as the extent that you can, but knowing and understanding the process can be really, really comforting. Okay, so let's get into my conversation with Jackie Curtis. Jackie, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to answer these questions that our community have brought forward for you today. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to help out. And as I've mentioned in the intro, and again, I think it's worth just touching on here, any guidance, any answers that you provide to these questions is strictly general. It's not prescriptive. It's such a, um, such a minimal amount of information that we have in these questions. So there's no way that you can speak to each and every individual's situation just to be ultra clear for everyone yeah. listening. This is not legal advice. This is a general Q&A. Definitely. Every person's situation is so different um, and this is absolutely just a little bite-sized nugget of information to answer a burning question, but certainly you need to kind of follow that up with getting some advice that's tailored to your specific situation. Absolutely. There is so much misinformation, I think, out there. I know when I was going through my separation, Jackie, people would come to me and say, oh, this is exactly what you're going to get. This is what's going to happen. This is what to expect. This is how long it will take. And everyone had a story that they were sure was like factual. So then you end up being flooded with so much information that by the time you actually get to your lawyer, you've been on this real roller coaster or you have set expectations. And then you get to your lawyer who is actually versed in the law and they dispel so much of the information you've been given. Like just actually sitting down and speaking with a lawyer is so incredibly valuable. Absolutely. And it's really empowering too, because with um, you know knowledge and information comes the ability to make informed choices and it can really clear up a lot of that noise that's in your mind from people's you know well-intended but sometimes unhelpful opinions about what should be happening and what you've touched on is an experience that I frequently have with clients where they may come in with a particular impression about how things are meant to be or what the law might require and when we sort of dig into things I would say probably more often than not, they leave my office feeling surprised um, that that what they thought was the case might not be quite the case, or even surprised that there were different options that they hadn't thought was available to them, for example. So it definitely is a situation where with so much information out there, um, you really need someone to help you filter through it and work out what bits are for you and what bits aren't. I think one of the biggest misconceptions that I was faced with was that so many people would say, oh, you're the female, you're the mother, you're entitled to so much more, or you're entitled to stay in your house, or or you're entitled to X, Y, Z. And I think that there's just a lot of um, a lot of misinformation sometimes floating out there. So maybe we start with that, with the percentages. You know, one of the questions that came through was, are we entitled to 50% of everything? That is such a big question. And although it's probably annoying, the answer really is it depends. Maybe. Um, You may well be. You may be entitled to more. You may be entitled to less. And the reason why my answer is so vague is because there isn't a set formula under family law in Australia. It isn't the case that, 
you know, you enter into a particular relationship, whether it's de facto or whether you get married, and then automatically you're entitled to particular things. The way that our laws work are that they are quite flexible to recognise the different circumstances that people are in and the different ways that they may come to a relationship and the different ways that they might exit. Our laws are flexible in order to recognise those different circumstances and that's why there isn't one set outcome for everyone. Um, It's quite common that it would be a 50-50 outcome, but it's not always going to be the case because um, of the framework that we work through when we're working out what each person should be taking from their property settlement. And it's going to depend on things like how long you've been together, whether you have children, what the working capacities of each of the member of the couple's is, um, whether either of you came to the relationship with significant assets or debts, um, the nature of the contributions, and they can be financial and non-financial, such as parenting and homemaking, um, and also what your situations look like moving forward. For example, if there's a health issue that affects someone's ability to work, or perhaps um, they might have a financial resource that they're able to generate income from outside going to work, or it may even um, depend on what the agreement or the outcomes are in relation to how the children are going to be cared for. So um, 50-50, certainly not automatic, although it can be quite common, which is why I think there is a misconception out there that that must be the outcome. And the best way for you to know whether it's right for you is to get some advice about your situation. Yeah, and one of the other questions that came through after that one was, is there a standard method for calculating equitable separation of assets? There's not, no. There, there's no formula as such. It's it's not a spreadsheet exercise. It's actually quite um, broadly balanced in that we're, we're really going through an exercise where we're going to look at what the assets are in the relationship and the property and debts that you have. But we've also got to give recognition to the things that can't be put in dollar terms, like looking after children or homemaking or, you know, caring for another relative in the family. So it really wouldn't be fair or just to always look at the dollars and cents in the equation. And that's why it can't really be a formula or a spreadsheet approach. There is certainly a process that the Family Law Act prescribes that most lawyers will work through with you that helps us go from A to Z to get to what do you have and how should we divide it? Um, And that's something that looks at those different factors and circumstances and that's sort of how you would get to a range of um, possible outcomes that a lawyer would say to you, look, I can't give you a precise dollar figure, but something between X and Y percentage is where justice and equity is going to be done for you. And I think it's worth really highlighting, and again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but non-financial contributions are as equally as valuable as the dollar contribution. They can definitely can be in a long relationship. So if you come to a relationship and you're building up your wealth together over a period of time, and particularly where there are children, if you've taken up that traditional family structure with one person perhaps being the primary income earner and the breadwinner, and the other person's work perhaps takes a back seat in order to look after children and the home. Those two things are given a lot of credit and they are sort of weighted fairly equally in a long relationship because you can't have one exist without the other. 
the breadwinner can't go out to work and work without the stay-at-home parent and homemaker taking care of things on the home front and the person who's in the home can't do that role without the financial support of the breadwinner. So in that sort of complementary way that they coexist, we do give you know, a good level of analysis and credit to those different types of roles in different spheres in a family structure. And speaking of the different roles and the non-financial contributions, another question is what happens with super? Yeah, so superannuation is an asset. It's an item of property that's recognised by our law in Australia under the Family Law Act. And like any relationship asset, it can be divided between Um, parties to a relationship when they separate or it can um, be left as it is depending on your situation. So um, it can certainly be on the table um, for discussion between a couple when they're separating and in many cases particularly where someone may have had some time out of the workforce to have and raise children um, and particularly women who statistically enter retirement with less superannuation than men there can be justice in some adjustment being made from the person whose superannuation has kind of gone unaffected um, going to that person so that their future needs are taken care of as well. What happens to bank accounts and money immediately when you separate or someone moves out? And then there's another question that's very similar to that, which is where do I start with sorting out money in the bank? Who gets what? Yes, so this is a a bit tricky, this one, because often what happens is the process that we work through in deciding how we're going to divide up our assets can take a little bit of time. And obviously, you need to be able to access money and go on with your life in the intervening period. So there really isn't a set rule or a prescribed um, requirement on people for what they should do. And I would say that common sense would generally apply here. You need to look at what your immediate needs are and obviously everybody needs to have a level of financial support Um, and you need to look at what the family expenses are and ensure that those can be met whilst you're waiting to work towards your final property settlement. It's going to be very situation dependent. Um, For example, if you've got a couple, both of whom are in work and both of whom receive an income, It may be that you decide to simply retain your income for yourselves and then if you have pets or children, you might agree to contribute to those expenses um, in a particular way until you get to a property settlement. It could be very different though if you have one person who either can't or isn't working and the other person is, is generating the income. Obviously, the person who's in the more vulnerable position is going to need access to money and some steps may need to be taken reasonably quickly to ensure that you're still going to have some access to funds um, in the interim. Another situation that sometimes comes up is people can be fearful of their partner taking money without their permission or money being wasted, for example. In answering the question about what should I do first, really the best thing you can do for yourself is get professional advice either before you separate, if if you're aware that it's coming or you've made the decision to separate, or as soon as you possibly can after you've separated because a lawyer can walk you through your situation, unpack what your financial needs are and give you some risk management strategies to ensure that your needs are going to be met and your finances are going to be protected. 
Advice for getting a rental after separation when I have no job as I'm a stay-at-home mum. This is a tricky one. So again, this is where there's a little bit of imbalance between the, the, the couple. One of them may, I assume, have their access to income and the better ability to secure alternate premises and perhaps the other person who's got the child-rearing responsibilities um, is going to have a little bit of a, a, a harder time with that. There is um, under our Family Law Act what we call spousal maintenance and that can arise where someone in the couple is unable to meet their immediate financial needs and they've got to be their reasonable financial needs. We're not talking about, you know, living a life of luxury. We're talking about, you know, roof over your head, food on the table, transport costs, etc. And where the other person has got some capacity to contribute to that person's costs there can be arrangements made where there's some of that income sharing to continue even after separation. And that might extend in this scenario to the income earning person perhaps guaranteeing a rental lease or providing the money for the rental property until a property settlement is done and that person has kind of re-established themselves independently and has um, got themselves to a situation where they may be able to be more self-supporting. What is a father's right? So many people assume that the mother should get full custody. Yeah, this is a very vexed question and it's one that can generate, you know, a lot of opinion. Um, The starting point in Australian family law is that kids have a right to know and have a relationship with both of their parents to the maximum extent that's in their best interests. So obviously if we have a situation where there might be risk factors for a child, say family violence or abuse or neglect or perhaps a parent has some um, issues with their parental capacity due to drug and alcohol problems or severe mental health issues, it may be that in that instance one parent may have a greater level of custody or what we call residence of a children um, because it's not particularly safe or it's not in the children's best interest to spend equal time or more time with that other parent. However, if there's none of those issues present, then there's a presumption that requires a court to automatically consider an equal time arrangement um, as a starting point. Sometimes this can be misunderstood as people saying that the law requires an equal time or a 50-50 arrangement. That's not the case because what you've got to do is start at that point and then filter through a range of different considerations that apply to your family to work out whether or not after that filtering process has happened, a 50-50 outcome does actually serve the best interests of the children. And there's a big, long shopping list full of considerations. I won't bore you all with them, but they're things like, you know, what's what's the nature of the child's relationships with each of the parents? What are the parents' abilities to parent like? Um, if the children are older um, and at a stage where they're mature enough to have views about where they might live and spend their time, what are those views and should they be carried out? Um, do the children have any special needs that might mean travelling between two homes is more challenging for them? And is it reasonably practical for kids to live equally with each parent? And, you know, obviously logistics comes into play there because it can be burdensome for kids to have to undertake lots of travel um, where parents live a distance from each other. So, Just to recap, it's a starting point to consider 50-50, meaning that both mums and dads or both parents in a same-sex couple would have the opportunity to be looking at 
their new family dynamic as a 50-50 arrangement, but it's not necessarily going to be the end point unless everyone is satisfied that that's what's in their children's best interests. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A couple of questions there just surrounding ages of children. What age is com like what is a common age for children to be considered mature enough to actually have a vote in their custody arrangement? That's a really good question and one that comes up very often. Unfortunately, it is a bit unclear because the legislation does not prescribe a specific age and largely it comes down to the individual child's maturity and their ability to understand the impact of the decision that they might make about where they live and where they spend their time, not just in the here and now but also in the long term. Because often you might have children who are, you know, maybe entering that sort of middle stage of childhood or early teenage years and they've got a, a view, they, they have a voice and they want to be heard and they're saying what they want, but they may not necessarily be able to comprehend the permanency of the decision that they're making or the longer-term ramifications of it, particularly when it involves, you know, perhaps becoming quite distanced from one parent or severely limiting their relationship with one parent. There's definitely a lot of caution around immediately acting on that child's wishes um, where that's where that's coming into play because of that principle around kids having the right to have that meaningful relationship with both parents. Yeah, I imagine it's a tricky one because for some kids as well, they would feel an obligation to tell each parent what they think the parent wants to hear. So it's a lot of pressure on them to sort of speak up and be the ones to make the decision. And I imagine, you know, there are so many layers there of like, no, 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 like the parents should be the one that, that the ones that know what's best, but also they should get a say. Yeah, it's very nuanced and it can be very complicated because you don't want children to be put in a position where they feel they have to choose Mm. and you don't want kids to be sort of trapped in a loyalty bind between their parents. Um, That's not a nice place for kids to be. And some, some kids actually feel completely relieved when the decision is taken off their shoulders and someone says to them, mum and dad have worked this out, you don't need to choose We've all had a conversation with some help to decide what works best for you and this is what we're going to do. Um, That can work really well. Of course, it's, you know, dependent on the child's personality. Some kids are going to be more forthright than others and they're really going to want to be heard. And luckily our system does have processes to allow that to happen in a reasonably safe way so that kids literally aren't pitted in the middle. They're able to kind of voice their views and thoughts through a third party Um, and get it back to their parents that way so that it's a little bit more safe. Um, But certainly there's usually, particularly in court proceedings context where children are expressing strong views, there's usually a little bit of an examination around, well, what are the factors that are influencing those views? 
does this child really independently and autonomously hold this wish to live in a certain way or has it come from subtle or even direct signs from one or both of the parents? Yeah, and also I guess their ability to take into consideration what's informing their decision for themselves. You know, some kids might say, oh, I really want to live with whichever parent it is because it's easier at that house in terms of maybe that parent doesn't make them do homework or doesn't make them do chores. Like there's so many layers there that it's just hard to know. There's a lot of Um, layers. Yeah. But another question just surrounding age there, Jackie, was what age can a breastfeeding child go to their dad's overnight as my child still wakes for feeds? So again, no set age, but it would certainly be the case that any judge being asked to look at when a breastfeeding child would need to spend some overnight time with the other parent, it's going to be treated very cautiously. Kids are generally accepted to be at their most vulnerable overnight and they generally want their primary attachment person with them when they have those nighttime disruptions or those nighttime awakenings. And if if a child's relying upon breastfeeding, not just for nutrition, but also for their sense of comfort and security, the court is going to be really mindful around that because when a child's sense of security is disrupted, that can have short and long-term negative outcomes. So there's certainly no set age, but it was is something that would be treated very gently and it would be looked at from the child's experience. What would the child's experience be like if he or she woke in the middle of the night, wanted to breastfeed and that wasn't available to them? that's probably not going to be in their best interest for the first few years of their life, obviously, depending on how long the breastfeeding is continuing for and how much of it is related to nutrition versus security. Um, Certainly there is a lot of trepidation around requiring infants to spend overnight time with their um, non-primary caregiving parent because of their um, limited ability to manage those separations from their primary attachment figure. Can I move away when I have no court orders, still in the same state, but can I move? So I'm assuming can I move with children because yes, yes. if you've broken up and you don't have kids, obviously yeah. you can move. But, yeah, yeah if you share yeah. children, do you need to have a conversation with your ex? Are you allowed to just pick up and move? What are the rules there? Yeah, this is a really tricky one and it can become quite a complex situation in some cases because it's understandable sometimes when a relationship breaks down. If you've been living in a place where perhaps your family network or your support network isn't local to you, it's natural when you're going through a life upheaval to want to kind of be with your people. So it's certainly understandable and, you know, at law we as Australians do have a right to freedom of movement However, that right that the parent has kind of comes into conflict with the child's right to have that meaningful relationship with both parents when it's envisaged that somebody wants to move away. And I'm also assuming in this question the move is going to impact on the kid's ability to spend time with the other parent. If you're moving in a distance that's reasonably modest and it's not really going to impact significantly on the kid's opportunity to see and spend time with their other parent regularly, then it's it's courteous to let the other parent know, but realistically it shouldn't come to a huge legal drama because those relationships can be maintained. The further the distance, though, and the more difficult it becomes for the children to spend time regularly with the parent that gets left behind, 
that's where this can become quite complicated and sometimes requires a court to decide what should happen. If you're thinking you're in this situation, your first step is to try to get the other party's agreement to allow you to move. If you decide to move without agreement and you don't have the court's permission to do so, you put yourself and your kids at risk that you will be ordered to come back to where you originally lived. Is until that even, sorry, is that even if they don't have parenting orders in place? Yes, it is. Okay. It is the case. So you need, in a nutshell, you need the other party's consent or you need a court order permitting you to relocate if you, if it's disagreed by the other parent. And that's even the case if you've got a parenting plan in, in place or if you've got nothing in place or if you've got parenting orders in place. You put yourself at risk that you'll have to sort of pack up again and come back until the court's had the opportunity to go through its process and confirm that your move with the kids is what's in their best interests. So effectively it wants to try and hold things as it was until they're confident in that outcome being what's best for the kids. Does it have any, like, does it make any difference if one parent has more custody of the children? Say one parent has 80% of the custody of the, you know, the actual physical custody of a child. Does that hold any bearing then on their choices Um, to move or not so much? It can. It can. Certainly one of the factors that the court looks at when it's going through that filter of what's in a child's best interest is what were the care arrangements for the child before the separation or before this move occurred. Um, But other factors are also going to come into play like the age of the children. So you might have someone who is a primary carer for a very young child, say two or three years old, And although they have a lot of the caregiving responsibilities, uh, a move away that's a long distance could be seen to not be in the child's best interest because their attachment and their relationship with the other parent is still very young and still developing. So a move presents a real risk to that child of their secondary parental attachment falling away altogether because they're not able to spend regular time with that parent in order to build on their relationship. So there's a whole mix of factors um, that are looked at to decide whether or not a, a relocation with children should occur. Are parenting plans really worth their weight and what happens if someone breaks it? That's a great question too. So a parenting plan, just for those who may not be aware, is one of the ways that you can agree with your former partner about how your children should be looked after and where they should spend their time um, once you've separated. It can include a whole range of different things. You can cover off school holidays and special occasions and phone contact and um, all sorts of different things, schooling. Um, Really, you can be as creative as you like with a parenting plan. And it is essentially your written agreement signed by the both of you Um, that reflects, I guess, the rules of what your co-parenting relationship are going to be. They're quite common um, when you've been through a mediation, but you can also develop one yourself or you can have lawyers assist you. What they aren't, though, is legally binding. So if someone decides to stop following the parenting plan, there's no legal consequence for that person. They're not fined. They're not, um, you know, hauled before a court and questioned Um, or cautioned or wrapped over the knuckles, effectively they are an agreement but they're not something that can be enforced. If someone does stop following a parenting plan in that scenario, 
What they do also provide, though, is evidence of what the previous caregiving arrangement was. And the court might very well say that was a perfectly good parenting plan and I'm now going to make some parenting orders that endorses what those arrangements were and we'll go back to what they were. But it's not bound to. It still has to go through its own independent analysis of what's in the children's best interests and what it might arrive at could look different to what the parenting plan provided for. So are they worth their weight? They can be but it really depends on your situation and the level of cooperation that you've got with your ex-partner. Another question that came through a few times but asked in different ways was along the lines of if I have a, um, a an arrangement where I'm receiving, oh, my gosh, I've just blanked on what's it called, payments. Yes, like child yeah. support. Child, oh, my gosh, child support. <laughs> if I have a child support arrangement but then I repartner I marry, I go on to have another child. Is my parenting support, like my support money impacted by changes in my personal relationship? So child support is worked out based on a formula. It is one of the areas in our family law world that that is derived from a formula. And effectively what it does is look at each parent of the child's income and looks at their level of care And then it will make an adjustment from one parent to the other to ensure that the child's financial needs are met. Usually it means that if the parent, if a parent has more care than the other parent and they're earning less income, they'll be receiving some child support from the other parent. If you repartner and you remarry, it won't make any difference to your child support because it's based on your personal income, not your income as a couple with your new partner or your new husband or wife. Um, If you and your partner have a child, it may affect your child support payments if you're the the person who's paying the other parent because you now have financial responsibilities to a second child um, as well as the original child. So if your ex is paying you child support and then your ex goes on to have six more children, that can then impact the money that you're receiving. Wow. Okay. Which is one of those things that, I mean, no one's got a crystal ball. No. No one knows what the future will hold for you and for your former partner. And it's one of the things that with good legal advice you can be thinking about because there may be other ways to ensure that your financial needs are met outside just child support payments. For example, when you're going through your property settlement, thinking about some of these what-ifs to ensure that you're going to be able to maintain yourself and maintain your children as independently as you possibly can is certainly something that a good lawyer is going to walk through with you to get you to a point where your dependence on your former spouse is as low as you possibly can manage. Last but not least, there are so many questions, but I will ask this one because it's a little different to the ones we've touched on. But if you are divorcing from someone and you have no children together and no assets together, you've divorced, you've each walked away, you've now had over a year apart from one another, what is the most straightforward way to then finalize the divorce? So are we separated but not yet divorced or are we talking about property settlement? So there's no property to separate, no children to separate. You've had over a year apart, but you just haven't gotten towards the actual paperwork. What's the best way for someone to deal with that situation? The quickest way is to do a joint application for divorce with your former spouse. And that means you're both together applying to the court and saying, our relationship has irretrievably broken down. We have been physically separated for more than 12 months 
um, or we've spent periods of time living under the same roof but separated and we now want to bring our marriage to a legal conclusion. I say that a joint is easier because there's a couple of um, steps that you can avoid, including having to serve your partner with your divorce application, which is what you have to do if you apply on your own. Um, And it also means you don't need to attend court in any capacity. It's all dealt with administratively on the papers. So that's the quickest way. Um, But obviously that requires the two of you to agree to do the paperwork, file it, follow it through. Sometimes that's easier said than done. The next quickest way is to do a sole application and the court itself actually provides a DIY kit, which is a really cost-effective way for people to process their divorce. You file it online and then the process takes place again on the papers after that. However, you do have to go to that step of ensuring that your former partner has been served with the divorce application so they're aware of it. Um, Thirdly, if if some of that is um, more than you think you can handle or perhaps you just want to outsource it, you can have a lawyer do it for you for reasonably um, efficient fees because there's not a lot of complexity in a straightforward divorce application and they can um, manage it for you from go to woe. There are so many things that we could talk about on this topic. I mean, we didn't even didn't even get into binding financial agreements and child support really and custody arrangements. I know. And a lot of that is in our surviving separation guide because you provide, as I've said to you before, we hit record so much information. It took me an hour and a half to read it uh, for the audio version. And I was saying to Jackie, I was getting stuck on some of her big lawyer words, but it's so digestible, so informative. It really does include everything that anyone needs to know to just even get their head around their rights and to have a realistic view of what a separation and a divorce really entails. So thank you for your contribution to Surviving Separation. Thank you for answering these questions. I know that you have a really special offer as well for our listeners. Can you talk to them a little bit about that, please? Sure. Sure. Well, first, it's my pleasure to be able to contribute to the podcast and to Surviving Separation. I definitely have been there and understand the overwhelm that, that comes with being in that situation and the thoughts that are racing through your mind and not knowing where to start. So if this conversation today or what I've written for the Surviving Separation Project is helpful to anyone, I'm just absolutely thrilled. If you need more assistance and you want to get some of that tailored advice that I've mentioned where I'll talk to you about some of these concepts but we'll actually be applying them to your particular situation, my firm, Parker Coles Curtis, offers a 30-minute free initial consult for a limited number of clients. I have an excellent team of lawyers that I work with, including my co-directors, Deborah Parker and Catherine Coles, and we are all accredited family law specialists. So if you're looking for some holistic, caring, empathetic advice that's going to put you on the right path, feel free to get in touch and we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, and I obviously can't recommend it enough. Having support was such a uh, such a like life-saving part of my whole separation. I definitely couldn't have done it without your support. I'm very, very grateful. So I will have all of those details in our show notes. Again, Jackie, thank you so much for taking time to answer these questions. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This is what I want. This is what I need. If you don't have to go, I can see.
catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 